0: So, um, welcome everybody, it's very nice to see you all here. It's a pleasure today to welcome James Wilson, um, who, as you know, teaches at UCL, and works predominantly, I think, on questions of the ethics of public health policy, and issues about intellectual property. But today, he's going to talk to us about thought experiments in ethics, So, James, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sue. So, it's great to see kind of various people, some of whom I've even taught, some people are friends um, from elsewhere um, here today. So, I might just sort of give you a little bit of background about how this uh, talk um, comes to exist and what the purpose is before getting down to sort of the real meat of it. So, about 10 years ago, I had a life-changing experience. I moved from what would have been sort of teaching philosophy, merely um, straight philosophy to undergraduates, to, to Keele University, where I spent four years there. And the only people I, have, I taught were professionals. They were doctors, they were nurses, they were social workers, policemen, judges, people from a variety of different perspectives who had, who had jobs that involved um, wrangling ethical questions. And when I began teaching these sorts of people, um, I start off with an assumption that... I kind of knew how to teach people of this sort and what we needed to do was effectively give them some uh, thought experiments uh, help them to make better distinctions and so that what would happen for maybe the first um, term or so was that I was there was that you know I'd be assigned to teach some uh, some doctors and nurses whose specialty was cancer care and so I'd go in there with armed with some thought experiments about kind of killing and and letting die and then then the, the doctors and the nurses, they look at this case study and they just, they'd just be a bit kind of baffled by it and say, well, that wouldn't happen. You had this thing about the doctor um, uh, needing to give lots of, more and more morphine so that the person's pain will be adequately controlled. But it just doesn't happen like that in real life. In real life, we allow the patients to control the pain and, we, and we're much better at it than it was than whoever, um, whichever thought philosopher came up with this. Thought experiment. And that stuck with me as a real problem because whilst those students, they weren't sort of adept in, in the sense that philosophers are at making distinctions, but they knew their world, they knew what it was for something to be a helpful ethical contribution to um, cancer care. And I didn't. And since then, the last um, five or six years, I've been at UCL where I've been teaching often quite similar topics, but to uh, um, philosophy students who, conceptually they're much more adept, but yet they don't have the. The background to kind of understand what's really going on in health policy. So, you give them an argument about responsibility, and they think, "Oh, well, it's obvious that um, that we should uh, allocate treatments in the NHS on the basis of responsibility." And then, over the period of weeks of of the course, we have to sort of unpack and think, "What would it mean? How how would we decide who was responsible? What would it mean for the relationship between the doctor and the patient, and so on?" And at certain point, the penny begins to to drop, and people realize well, well maybe it wasn't so complicated, it wasn't so easy after all. Maybe the results of the kind of, the very abstract philosophical thought experiment didn't really apply in so obvious a way to real life after all. So this paper is really about me trying to work through those sort of experiences I've had through teaching, where you, you start off, you know, as an educator trying to help people to do the most rigorous work that... You can, but it turns out that maybe rigorous work in this kind of area requires uh, not just sort of the ability to make philosophical distinctions and so on, but also often a kind of a knowledge of the details on the ground. So trying to unpack why that is and, and what that means for doing normative ethics is, is at the heart of what we're talking about today. Um, given that I suspect that quite a lot of the people in the audience... Um, don't do that much work in normative ethics and maybe do a lot of work in other areas of philosophy where where thought experiments are used. I thought I maybe should say a little bit to um, try to isolate the the topic of today's talk compared to maybe some of the other uses of thought experiments in philosophy. So, in other bits of philosophy, um, often you'll find a thought experiment used as a, for instance, as a reductio ad absurdum, so that when you look at... um, Galileo's attempt to demolish kind of Aristotle's theory of motion basically Galileo says well you know, Aristotle has said well the, the heavier an object is you know, the more quick the quicker it will fall Galileo basically says, well what happens if you tie a light object and a, he- and a heavy object together it looks like Aristotle's theory should say both of it would fall more quickly and that it would fall more slowly so there seems to be a contradiction so a thought experiment can do that sort of thing or a thought experiment can show that, show that something is conceptually possible, so that um, in an interesting paper uh, from 1969, Sidney Shoemaker basically, through the use of a thought, a thought experiment, tries to explain how it could be that there could be time without things, how time could pass without anything in the universe changing. Or another use of thought experiments might be um, Gettier's use of of, of thought experiments in the, in the classic um, 1963 papers where we see that in a number of different uses of thought experiments where where philosophers attempt to use a, a thought experiment to, to, to get us to clarify the boundaries of, of vague or fuzzy concepts. But, but all of those are, are valid and useful and interesting uses of thought experiments, but they're not what I'm talking about today. I'm talking in this paper about a very specific use of thought experiments, which is I think, you, well, certainly uh, um, very prevalent, perhaps unique to certain forms of normative philosophy. And this is what I describe as thought experiment as, as a simplified model. So that in this kind of case, uh, thought experiment is used as a, to provide a, a toy example, a, an example which is deliberately much simpler than any, any example we'd um, encounter in real life. But the thought is that we can set up a simple model of something. By looking at the simple model of it, we can decide, uh, we can decide perhaps more rigorously, more clearly than we could by looking at the, the messy complexity of real life, that once we've got things clear about the, the simplified model, then we'll be able to go back to real life and make somehow wiser, more sensible decisions. So... A good example of the kind of thought experiment I have in in mind, I put this one on the, on the handout, um, is is a classic one from James Rachels on killing and letting die. So James Rachels basically sets up two entirely parallel cases and asks us to to use that as the basis of thinking about our distinction between um, killing and, and letting lie and whether it makes a moral difference. So I'll I'll read this out. As, as, as we'll see later, quite often the, the sort of language uh, that the philosophers use to describe their thought experiments can make a, a difference. So that um, I'll take the sort of, I'll indulge myself often by reading out exactly verbatim the way that the thought experiment has been set up by the philosopher. As You may notice some things as we go on through the paper about the sorts of things that are said and not said or, or the way in which um, the thought experiment is framed. So... Smith stands to gain a large inheritance if anything should happen to his six-year-old cousin. One evening when the child is taking his bath, Smith sneaks into the bathroom and drowns the child and then arranges things so that it will look like an accident. Jones also stands to gain if anything should happen to his six-year-old cousin. Like Smith, Jones sneaks into the bathroom planning to drown the child in his bath. However, just as he enters the bathroom, Jones sees the child slip and hit his head and fall face down in the water. Jones is delighted. He stands by, ready to push the child's head back under if it is necessary, but it is not necessary. With only a little thrashing about, the child drowns all by himself, accidentally, as Jones watches and does nothing. Rachel draws the conclusion that, given that these two scenarios um, differ in precisely one element, the fact that one involves a killing and the other one involves a letting die, then... This tells us something very important in general about the distinction between killing and letting die. And that what Rachel seems to have in mind and, and what uh, you see again and again in the, in the literature is a, a sort of scientific model. The idea being that just as in a scientific experiment you can set things up with precise initial conditions then alter one variable and then see what happens. So in, so in the case of a, a thought experiment we can set up one uh, initial case, we can modify... Uh, one element of it, see what happens. And then we're able to, to get you know, some kind of precise fix on, on the difference that's um, tweaking that particular um, element of it. Um, so that sometimes you might want to tweak more than one element. I mean, uh, Dan Dennett, slightly unfortunately, maybe for an English audience, describes this as knob philosophy. Can you imagine tweaking, <laughs> tweaking the knobs? LAUGHTER uh, um, So, in the longer version of the paper, I make a few more distinctions here, which anybody wants to question me on, then they can. So that basically, I suggest that uh, we can distinguish four different sorts of thought experiments in normative ethics, uh, almost a kind of a, on a two by two grid. Some some thought experiments seem to be set up to just as just as clear cases, something like when Peter Singer introduces the idea of the, the shallow pond, you're, you're walking past a shallow pond, a child is drowning, do so you wade in and get your shoes muddy to get the child out? That's introduced as, a, as a, a clear case that he assumes that everybody will answer the same way. Other cases are introduced as, as problem cases where, where we want to think about them because it's, because it's difficult to know what we should say about them. Things like um, uh, trolley cases, cases where, where it's a question of well, should you redirect a threat from from, uh, from killing five people to killing one where there's quite a lot of disagreement about them people think about those cases precisely because they seem to be difficult um, at the same time you can have one-off cases or you can have sequences of cases so uh, a one-off case might be uh, uh, something like say one of Bernard Williams's thought experiments about utilitarianism. You have someone like George, the chemist, who has to decide whether to take a, a job doing uh, chemical weapons research. He knows that if he takes the job, then he'll do it less well than someone else and so that the research won't go as quickly. But would that be a problem for his integrity? Or alternatively, we can have um, sequences of cases, like what Rachel's is trying to, to do or what often the trolley literature gives us, where you start with some initial case and then you modifi- modify it or you modify it again. So, you, so, you, so in that case, it looks very much more like a scientific experiment, or maybe that's the idea that people are trying to give off. So so the jumping-off point of this paper is the idea that, well, the observation that the use of thought experiments in normative ethics is often defended either by analogy to or exactly as an instance of scientific experimentation. And... (coughs) People often do that, make that analogy on the assumption that, well, this will allow us to show that thought experiments are really rigorous. It will put, the, put them, as, as we're, epistemolo- epistemologically um, in the clear. Whereas my main thought in this paper is that, well, even if it's true that thought experiments can be rigorous in the same way as, uh, as scientific experiments are, they, they also inherit all the sorts of problems that come with designing rigorous scientific experiments. Um, experiments so that as we'll notice that there are lots of really quite difficult methodological challenges in doing experimental research and those are challenges that philosophers have barely begun to think about so even if it's true that, that a thought experiment is a real experiment you can't just um, take that for granted you have to as it will walk the walk as well as merely talking the talk you have to ensure that what you're doing is rigorous in the same way as what the scientists are doing and you have to find some way of over, either overcoming or just acknowledging the sorts of difficulties that um, arise for scientific experimental research. Um, just as a, a footnote um, somebody might well be going to um, object in about half an hour once I finish the paper well, you know, what if I don't what if I don't think that thought experiments are kind of a work in the same way as um, science does and um, I think that's, to a certain extent, it's a reasonable um, complaint about what I'm going to say. But that my um, response is going to be that, well, even if you don't think that thought experiments work in, in exactly the same way that uh, scientific experiments do, uh, it's very difficult, to, given the sort of use that people want to put um, thought experiments to in normative ethics, it's very difficult to get away from the thought that, well... A thought experiment is a kind of model. You've, you've produced a, a simplified model of a scenario. You said, well, I'm going to analyse the simplified model of the scenario and I'm going to draw conclusions from that scenario about what should be done in much more complicated scenarios. And that's the nub of the problem. And so that, and I don't think you can get away from that problem even if you say, well, oh, well, I didn't want to say that they were scientific after all. I wanted to say that they were rigorous in some non-scientific way. So long as you uh, are committed to the idea that, that a thought experiment is a kind of model, then you weren't going to face the sorts of problems that we're dealing with in this paper. And so within the literature on experimental design, people often draw a distinction between internal validity and external validity. So, now, internal validity um, is, 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 a, is a matter of is the, about the quality of the Research design. External validity is about the usefulness of the, re- the results that you can get out of a, a valid research design. So, basically, um, a piece of um, experimental research is going to be internally valid to the extent that you've kind of set it up to avoid all the confounding factors in a way that so that you're, you're correctly measuring the effect of your intervention. Um, and so, just to make that a little bit more... You know, concrete. If you think about the way that um, uh, randomised clinical trials work, it, there's a whole sort of history over time of how, how people have sort of you know, developed a, an account of methodology, which has I been mean developed in, in many books, in order to counteract the sort of biases that otherwise might afflict um, experimental research. So that uh, obvious factors like, well, the research is, is randomised, so nobody gets to, to choose who goes into what group. It's... Uh, put, uh, you 're trying you 're assigning people to either to one group or either to an intervention group or a control group um, uh, by some kind of uh, computer algorithm or by tossing a coin uh, often insofar as it 's possible you, you blind the people who are either the people who are receiving the, the intervention or the people giving out the intervention so that they don't know so they don 't know whether the, whether the person receiving the inter- intervention is in the control group or the intervention group you have. Uh, elaborate literature on how to, to decide what the, the right sample size is so that make sure that, you, that you're applying the intervention to enough people to, to, uh, to uh, ensure that you can detect the kind of um, effect that you're... Uh, expecting. In addition, you need to be able to say, well, what, it, what's, what, it is, what is it that you're expecting to happen up, up when you do the intervention, so that you can't sort of, as it were, switch your endpoints halfway through. It. And then that, that's a way of sort of avoiding confusing um, accidental correlation with causation. So within the literature on research design, there's all these uh, very complicated ways in which... Uh, uh, we attempt to uh, reduce bias and confounding factors. And one of the questions we're gonna come to very shortly is that, well, how do we do that in philosophical thought experiments? But we'll come back to that question in just a moment. But the the really worrying thought is that even if you can have a really well-designed piece of experimental research, a piece of research that's um, internally valid, that doesn't necessarily t- tell you very much about whether that same intervention will work in different circumstances. So that a randomised control trial will, will tell you with a high degree of certainty whether that intervention works on a particular target population. And the, part of setting up the experiment in a really rigorous way is, is often about sort of controlling who, who can be um, inside that, who, who's eligible to be part of the research project and 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 so on. But this leaves us actually a massive problem that often you can show that something works in an idealised context, but it may not work um, in reality. So that um, trials of um, asthma drugs are really, uh, or asthma inhalers are a a really good example of this. So for various reasons... um, it's usual to um, exclude anyone who's smoked for, for a long time from, from taking part in a trial of an asthma drug. But, but the thing is, quite a large percentage of the people who actually have asthma are smokers. And, and similarly, um, if you're doing a, a trial for, for, a, for an asthma drug, then usually you'll, you'll give people advice on how to use the inhaler, but, and, pe- and try to ensure that people use the inhaler at the, the, precisely the moment that they're supposed to. But you take the drug out of the experimental context and the doctor prescribes it, then the doctor may not have the time to explain exactly how to use the inhaler or the person may not listen so much, there may not be so much training, they may sort of forget to use the doses. And so there's, you can have something that's a really good drug in, in, a, in a precisely controlled scenario but turns out to be not very useful at all or in fact actively harmful if it's used in the way that ordinary people would typically use it. And so... Um, as kind of Nancy Cartwright once put it, you know, an, um, a randomised control trial can show that an, an intervention worked somewhere, but it can't show that it will work here. So we can introduce the idea of external validity. So we can say that a, an experiment has external validity in addition to it having internal validity if its results are applicable in a wide variety of other contexts, and in particular if there's a reason to think that that it's um, that the that its uh, results are applicable here and now so assuming that there is this strong analogy between the thought experiment and the actual experiment it seems like we've got two questions that we need to be able to answer about in order for thought experiments and ethics to be rigorous first one is well what is internal validity in in an ethical thought experiment second one is you know The question about external validity. To what extent do ethical judgments that are correct of the world of the thought experiment generalise to a wide variety of other contexts, including ethical decision-making in the actual world? So it's obviously going to be a little bit... um, controversial, and more work's going to need to be done to set out the precise uh, requirements for internal validity for thought experiments. And in the paper, I've I've made a first stab at it. I suggest that there at least three things are going to be required as kind of basics. First one is that, well, you know, what what in legal terms would be described as the, the facts of the case need to be described clearly, economically, consistently. We need to be able to know what the case is. Second, I think that the case needs to do more than just show that there's a conceptual possibility of something happening. You have to be able to, to um, imagine it as a genuine case of something. Otherwise, it just doesn't tell you if it's... Um, I think it may be apocryphal, but there's, there's, a, there's a moment in, in a, a public philosophy lecture where, where somebody making a really abstruse point and a, a member of the general public supposed to ask, and said, can you give an example of that? And the philosopher said, well, imagine that P. <laughs> <laughs> so it has to be more than imagine that P. And third, I think that the, that the problem and the analysis of it needs to be somehow uh, genuine. You have to be able to imagine in um, enough detail, not just any kind of outlandish elements of the thought experiment, but what what it would mean for somebody to, for those outlandish elements of the thought experiment to actually be be true. If the thought experiment requires you to uh, imagine people who have, you know a thousand faces or, or people who can split in half like amoebas. You have to imagine what a world which contains such people would be like. What would the norms be like? What would it be like to live in such a society? Otherwise, it's unclear what the implications of, of, of that uh, thought experiment are at all. It's very difficult to imagine it if we can't imagine a coherent world around it. So I picked up... So, I guess for, for all the thought experiments I'm going to sort of ha- be having a, a pop at in this paper, I tried to pick, pick thought experiments sort of from people who are generally acknowledged to be the best. You know, so it's not rather than sort of, try, you know, I guess the, the old adage is, you know, should be sort of kicking up rather than kicking down. So I'm, I'm going to have a pop at, at Nozick and Francis Cam who are sort of generally thought to be kind of masters of the art and point out that some of the thought experiments that they come up with appear to be clearly not internally valid. So here's one from Nozick which I put on the the handout and again I'm going to read the whole thing and so we can puzzle through it together and just see the the weird ambiguities and and think well how on earth could this be supposed to be the basis for rigorous reasoning. If someone picks up a third party and throws him at you down at the bottom of a well the third party is innocent and a threat. Had he chosen to launch himself at you in that trajectory he would be an aggressor. Even though the falling person would would survive his fall onto you May may you use your ray gun to disintegrate the falling body before it crushes and kills you? Well, I take it that Nozick's thought experiment is is memorable, but it seems to be problematically unclear. So, first of all, that the presentation of the case seems to conflate the perspective of the omniscient narrator telling what's going on with the perspective of the person at the bottom of the the well. It may be possible to view such a scenario from from this sort of uh, third-person omniscient perspective or from the perspective of the person at the bottom of the well. It seems impossible to do both things um, simultaneously. Quite well, apart from this, Nozick's attempt to make the case interesting, just make it needlessly difficult to interpret. So we want to know, well, why is this person at the bottom of the well? Have they, they themselves been thrown there? Did they climb down of their own accord? If the well is really as deep as Nozick says it is, would it be possible to see up to the top? Would you, know, would you be able to, to, to hear that a body was falling? Would you be able to see that the thing that was falling was a body until it was too late? Would you be able to tell whether the body was going to, to hit you? Would you know if you aimed your ray gun at it that it would disintegrate it? And so on. And this whole question, why introduce the idea of the ray gun, which seems to, to bring in the idea of a scientific, uh, science fiction scenario without in any way being explained? Second example is from Francis Camp. Again, i I give you the whole thought experiment. I'll I'll read it out. Suppose I stand in a part of India, but I have very long arms that reach all the way to the other end of India, allowing me to reach a child who is drowning in a pond at a great distance. Now, I looked it up on a map, and this means that the arms must be at least 1,000 miles long. Well, Cam intends that this case, which he calls the reach case, will allow us to see that... Uh, this sort of case should be treated like a case where we're helping somebody uh, very close to you because it's, it's about the, the reach of your arms that, that matters. Well, in, in, I've had real difficulty just trying to interpret this or trying to get a coherent view of what the case is supposed to, what the facts of the case are supposed to be. Well, it seems from the context. Well, first question is well. In, is it that the person has a 1,000-mile-long arm, but the rest of their body is supposed to be scaled up in proportion? Well, it seems from the context that that's not the case. But, so it appears that Cam is trying to ask us to imagine a case where I'm the same height as I usually am, but my arms are 1,000 miles long. But I find it very difficult to imagine that. Well, how, how heavy would the arms be? How would I support them? Where would I buy my shirts? <laughs> And the underlying thought worry I have is that, well, in order to be able to use a thought experiment like this to be able to do serious ethical thinking, we need to be able to reconstruct, we have to, to construct a, a world around this. We need to be able to think of what would a world be like in which there were people with 1,000 with mile long arms. And Cam just hasn't given us any material to, to, to begin to, to do that. She just stipulated that there's a person with a 1,000 mile arms and then asked you to have some kind of intuition about that. Now, um, in making some of these criticisms and putting uh, in earlier versions of this paper, <coughs> it's about this time that various of my friends and colleagues have accused me of being rather uncharitable. They said, well, well the thing is, well, you might be able to have a quick, you know, have a few cheap shots at, at Nozick and Cam, get, get some, some laughs, wake people up. But the thing is, in the context in which they're using them, surely it's clear enough what, what, what Cam or, or Nozick... Means, that what we should do is apply our duty of charity as philosophers in order to uh, you know, just sort of do the, the, the interpretation of the thought experiment. Um, I guess in general I say that interpreting philosophy charitably is, is an important obligation. But I, I think that this appeal to charity sits very uncomfortably with, with the idea that, that uh, rigor in thought experiments is to be... Uh, explained in this scientific or quasi scientific way, because in so far as a, a thought experiment is trying to do something scientific, its rigor has to come through its methodology, and that it just a, it would just be a nonsense uh, within the context of a scientific paper to to describe your methodology uh, in such a loose way that certain, somebody had no idea what it was that the sper- experiment consisted in if you were to you know to say not bother to say what the drug was or when it was, when it was dosed or who was uh, included in your uh, population sample. And this is an important point because reproducibility is a basic requirement of scientific respectability. In order for an experiment even to be publishable, you know, you've got to be able to write the methodology up in a way that allows uh, a reader to appraise its internal validity and to allow a suitably skilled team of people to reproduce the results. So I take it that if a thought experiment is going to be reproducible in the same way way as a a physical experiment is going to be reproducible, it's vital that the author presents the reader with everything that would be needed to run that thought experiment uh, and to get the same result. Here's thing where things get really difficult. We face an kind of obvious problem that philosophers don't really talk about very much about thought experiments. Um, I'm th- almost, almost embarrassed pointing this out, but people don't talk about it very much. But you know, um, well, Thought experiments are a kind of fiction, you know, a special kind of short fiction. And just as in a longer fiction, what's happening is that, that the author is presenting you with a, with a world, a world in which certain sorts of things happen uh, to certain sorts of people. Now, just as in longer fictions, it's, it's clear that only a very small number of, of the questions that could be asked about this world that the author has conjured into existence will actually be answered with the materials that the author has provided us with. Now, this can often be um, a bit of a a virtue in literary presentation, so that, as it is, you uh, start reading Kafka's metamorphosis, and it's just as presented as a, as a fact that Gregor Samsa was turned into a gigantic louse. You know, Kafka doesn't really explain why, or you know, whether there's some kind of disease going around, how it happened. What... But nonetheless, he's able to, to conjure to that into existence. It makes the, the story more enigmatic, maybe more universal, maybe more powerful. And that often writers can very much play with that indet- indeterminacy so that they le- leave you uncertain perhaps what happened or whether what characters say is, is untrue or not. But insofar as there's indeterminacy in, in the philosophical thought experiment, and, so, and insofar as you want to use the philosophical thought experiment um, in a scientific way, in a, in a way that's uh, reproducible, then it seems that this, this indeterminacy creates a, a massive set of problems for you. So where are you you giving people uh, a piece of text which you acknowledge is is massively indeterminate but nonetheless you start to say well I want to get something reproducible out of it? How do you do this? Now I think in reality philosophers try to kind of finesse their way around this by a set of conventions about, about how to construct thought experiments and how to interpret them which are very rarely talked about so here's my attempt to reconstruct them if you can add of extra rules or or suggest I may be wrong about some of these rules then all to the good so first one seems to be that the that the thought experiment narrator is omniscient that the this narrator is able to, to relate clearly and concisely what each of the actors within the thought experiment is able to do their psychological states and also able to relate with certainty the results of any actions that may uh, arise Often this is, Obviously, this is rather different from our experiences of day-to-day life. Second convention seems to be that the, that the case raises the ethical question or ethical questions that the author of the thought experiment says it does. The ethical issue that the case raises is not subject to dispute. Third convention seems to be that no morally relevant differences other than those that have been stipulated by the framework of, frame of the thought experiment apply to the situation. The fourth one would be that in imagining the case um, the readers only allowed to add you know, any colour and detail that's morally um, irrelevant. So that applying this back to the, to the Smith and Jones case, which we started with with Rachel. So I guess, you know, insofar as you're imagining Smith and Jones, they've got to be some age, some age maybe they're sort of 30, maybe they're, they're 50, but that um, insofar as you... Um, Imagine that you can you add you know, more colour about you know, their, their motives, what it is that they'll do with the money when they get it and so on. But uh, in order for the thought experiment to work, any, any facts which apply to, S- to Smith also have to apply to Jones. And you aren't allowed to add any facts in which might uh, raise a question about whether they're morally responsible. You can't say that, for instance, that, imagine that one of them had been hypnotised or that they were a psychopath, for example, if, if you think the psychopaths don't have moral responsibility. But I think even given these, um, these uh, conventions, we're left with a, a really big problem here. And that we can put it... I wouldn't say this is as strong as a, dile- as a dilemma, but certainly there's a sort of uh, a tension in the very idea of ethical thought experiments. So that if you sort of go kind of, kind of full kind of... Um, full Francis cam and give us something incredibly sparse then and we say well if, if we say that uh, well the case is you know sparsely described and it's stipulated only to have the facts or features that I I say it does then the problem is that there's very little to imagine it's difficult for actually to see the case as a real case so that was kind of one of the problems we had with the with the with the thousand mile long arms case but in so far as the the author gives us a case that's richer and more realistic, where there's actually something for us to interpret, get inside, feel real. It's much more difficult to, to see that as as, it were, as part of a controlled scientific intervention. Uh, insofar as there seems to be so much that we're bringing to it ourselves and interpreting it, and we're, we're going to be acknowledging that different people will be interpreting that in different way, different people will complete it uh, in different ways. So I take it that so far we haven't done anything like delivered a knockdown demolition of the very idea of internal validity in thought experiments. But it looks like it's going to be a significantly problematic concept. Certainly, much more problematic than the idea of internal validity um, in scientific um, experiments. I'll uh, we'll come back to right at the end to the question about what this means, whether it means that we should actually give up on the scientific model or whether we just have to have slightly more. Uh, be slightly more modest about what we can hope for from, from uh, a valid thought experiment. So next, the idea of external validity. So I take it, and well, it's weird that I feel maybe the need to actually point this out, that, that, that some, maybe something about the way that certain bits of philosophy are done that, that, that they, people um, maybe don't take this next point to be obvious. But I take it, it should be obvious that a defense of, of the methodology of using thought experiments in, ethical, in ethics needs to be able to show more than just that we're able to make helpful and accurate ethical judgments about thinly described fictional cases. It also needs to show that these judgments about these thinly described fictional cases bear in an enlightening way on ethical judgments that we should be making about the real world. And what this what this requires us to do is to be able to go from Thought experiments that we could describe as having internal validity to thought experiments which will which have external validity. And I think there are two main challenges here, both of which are extremely difficult to, to deal with. The first one I've described as normative contextual variance. And the number of the problem here is, well. What happens if the ethical judgments that can be established as, as appropriate or correct in the world of the thought experiment uh, depend on special features of that normative context in the, in, the, in the thought experiment which don't transfer properly to the real world or to, or to other sorts of contexts? What happens if, that, uh, if, the, if the normative insight of the thought experiment turns out to be more local than we, than we thought? The second problem is what I described as the the non-transferability of causal structures. So this is exactly the same problem we find for external validity in in, um, physical uh, experiments. The basic point is that, well, the way you've set up your thought experiment may have presupposed certain sorts of um, causal structures, but it may be that the world just doesn't have anything... uh, uh, even vaguely similar to those causal structures, so it may be that any you know, implications that, that you think that the thought experiment has, maybe you know, it just doesn't have those, those, those implications, given that the, that the world has a rather different causal structure from the world of the thought experiment. So, so normative contextual variance. So the way that Rachel's argues in presupposes that there isn't really a problem of external validity in, in ethics. So Rachel seems to presuppose that all the difficulty, all the, all the hard work is going to be um, done at the level of trying to ensure internal validity. He, he seems to work on the assumption that if he can precisely equalise his two cases, if he can describe two cases that exactly equal but for one feature, and then... Then he'll have found out something really important about the world, as it were. What he, what from Rachel's perspective, he'll have found out is if we tweak that one feature, shifting from a from a from a killing to a letting die, that tells us, as were, for all cases, what, what difference you know, killing versus letting die makes, just in itself. Now, if this thesis, well, uh, Shelley Kagan describes this as the ubiquity thesis, the idea that if if a if a moral feature makes a you know, as it were. A difference you know just on its own in in one case it must make that same difference everywhere now if this ubiquity thesis were true then there just wouldn't really be a problem of an external validity but i don't have the space here to to prove it and certainly for the sake of my argument i don't need to prove the following point merely all i need to say is that um, the ubiquity thesis is at best controversial and I don't think we can presuppose the truth of the ubiquity thesis when we're um, analysing moral cases. Um, there are many people who've argued that, well, we can get sort of um, normative con- contextual um, interaction. Famously, particularists do this, but even people who aren't particularists think that, that uh, you can get normative contextual interaction. So that one kind of obvious example would be that, well, for the most part, it seems that sort of um, the fact that something would give someone pleasure is a is a good thing. It's it's usually a moral feature in its favour. But if that pleasure is a, a sadistic pleasure, then most people have the thought, well, you know that that's either not valuable at all, or maybe it's a positively bad thing to bring into the world. And the worry here is that well, the ubiquity thesis is is an incredibly strong thesis. It seems that. Few people actually believe it once they once they think think about it and, and try to sort of respond to counterexamples. And even even the sort of the arch defenders of generalism against particularism, uh, Ridge and McKeever, effectively argue, okay, well effectively they, they they give up the game and say, oh, of course, well, we've got to be holist about moral reasons. We've got to sort of acknowledge that, that things are going to be contextual and things can change their, their variants in different sorts of contexts. So as far as I can tell, there isn't a, a big appetite for defending this ubiquity thesis and even if it even if there are people who are willing to defend the ubiquity thesis it doesn't look like it's something that would be safe to to presuppose as the basis of a kind of methodology it's more like if we go back to the scientific example it more just be well if you if you know that there's that Many uh, respected uh, researchers think that a particular piece of uh, equipment is, is, is faulty or, or, or will leak or contaminate the results in certain contexts. It would be foolish to, kind of, to rely on that particular piece of equipment if you didn't have to. Second set of worries are about the non-transferability of causal structures. So this is basically the same problem as you get for external validity in real-world um, uh, experiments. So, I mean... One good example comes from a recent book by um, uh, Jeremy Hardy, who I'm very pleased is here today, and uh, Nancy Cartwright, and their book is all about um, the idea of evidence-based policy. And uh, what they what they show very convincingly in the in, <coughs> in the book is well, you can have something w- you can have a, a a policy invention which is internally valid. It, you can be you can have designed something very well to work in a particular context. We try to to apply that. Uh, that piece of research in a, in a different context to, to achieve the same result it may just not work because you hadn't te- taken account of all the relevant background factors so the example one of the examples they use is of, uh, of the California class reduction um, the, sorry the California class, class size reduction program where there'd been a very successful randomized control trial in, in Tennessee which had shown that well if you reduce um, class sizes you can improve educational outcomes the same uh, apparently the same intervention was tried in in california but on a much larger scale it turned out not to work at all and there, there's some dispute still about why it was that it, it failed to work but some of the factors that seem to be obviously relevant are that well uh, if you're going to uh, roll out such a big program of class size reduction on a statewide level, you need a lot more teachers. Uh, it turned out they needed 12,000 more teachers. They didn't have 12,000 more teachers of a relevant quality. You're also going to need many more classrooms if you're going to make classroom sizes smaller everywhere. Again, it turned out that, that classrooms of the right kind of quality weren't available, um, and so on. So you can see that uh, something might have worked in one small context, but trying to, to use it in a different context. Um, it may well not work. And what I'm going to suggest to you is that a very large number of the the thought experiments that philosophers give are subject to exactly the same problem. So that very often, uh, particularly because of the the weird kind of omniscient voice that, that narrates the thought experiment, so that... A thought experiment can be about something which in real life we'd have, very, we wouldn't, we'd have some patchy knowledge about or, or maybe kind of beliefs or we wouldn't really know what was going on. But the thought experiment does, the, the philosopher does their thought experiment about that and they, everything has suddenly become crystal clear. You know, everything, everything has become yes or no, this or that will happen. And um, so on the, the handout, there's a, a thought experiment from a, a very recent paper in Philosophy and Public um, Affairs, which particu- I, I thought you know, particularly irks me in this, in this way, um, uh, partly because I work, do quite a lot of work on, the, on ethical issues of, of infectious disease. And again, I'm going to read it out, possibly in a uh, slightly mean way. It's okay. Uh, mass vaccination known victims. One million young children are threatened by a terrible virus, which is certain to kill all of them if we do nothing we must choose between mass-producing one of two vaccines. Capacity constraints constraints prevent us from producing both. Vaccine 1 is certain to save every child's life. However, the vaccine will not provide complete protection against the virus. If a child receives vaccine 1, the virus is certain to paralyse one of the child's legs so that he or she will walk on crutches for the rest of his or her life. Vaccine 3 is sure to allow 99 999,000 children to survive the virus completely unharmed. However, because of a, a known particularity in the genotome, vi- virus 3 is certain to be completely ineffective for 1,000 identified children. These doomed children are sure to be killed by the virus if we choose vaccine 3. Now, the case described differs in various salient ways from the causal mechanisms by which infectious diseases are spread in the actual world. First, in the actual world, exposure to the infectious disease pathogen is a necessary but not a sufficient condition for developing a clinically significant infection. Whether a clinically significant infection results depends on the interaction of features in the host, the person, the environment, and the pathogen itself. Second, in any real-life scenario, there'd be a distribution of degrees of severity of clinical symptoms rather than a sharp divide into two homogenous groups. And again, in the real world, vaccines are very rarely 100% effective. They're likely to be more effective for some people than others. Some people will be allergic to the vaccine, won't be able to receive the vaccine. Some, some children will have been ill on that day, would not be at, at, at school, so would not have received the vaccine, and so on. So the basic point is in any real world vaccination scenario, whatever we do, if we're trying to vac- vaccinate a million children, some children will not be vaccinated. So the point is that in any kind of thought experiments that attempting to model the causal structure of of a real world vaccination case, uh, the number of persons who are exposed to the pathogen, the number of people who develop the clinically uh, relevant symptoms, just won't be knowable in advance. All we'll be able to do is we'll be able to estimate the number of people who are likely to be infected, uh, the the number of people who are likely to develop uh, clinically relevant. Features with the use of a mathematical model, and um, for anyone who's into mathematical models, it's obvious that the mathematical model would need to be stochastic. Ie, you'd have to build into it the fact that uh, a number of, of of random elements. You'd have to run the, the model maybe you know, hundreds or thousands of times with different parameters to get some idea of what the spread is likely to be. The third difference is that the case is stipulated to be one of a deadly virus, but there's no discussion of the mode of transmission. So. And obviously, in any usual case of a, of a virus that attacks human beings and can be tr- transmitted from one person to another, herd immunity will be relevant. That's to say that the likelihood of being um, getting a clinically relevant um, um, instance of the case, even the likelihood of being um, of having the, of, of, of being exposed to the pathogen, depends on the number of other people in the society who have been vaccinated, as obviously the, 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 the virus can't move around uh, unless uh, uh, people, it's able to infect people. So the point is that in any real-world scenario, your chance of getting, um, getting the disease if you haven't been vaccinated is related to the number of other people who've been vaccinated. And it seems that Frick's scenario three just elides this, this obvious and important point about vaccination. Just as it seems that if the vaccine is ineffective for the hunt for the thousand children these shil- these children will a be sure to be exposed to the pathogen and b be sure to die as a result of being exposed to the pathogen and another weird element of it that the, 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 the Thought experiment seems to presuppose that we can know in advance who the 1,000 children are who will, for whom the, the, the vaccine will be entirely ineffective, but we'll have, have no way as it were, rounding them up and putting them into isolation, which would be, again, what you might do in a real-life scenario. So, again, maybe you might want to accuse this of being a slightly sort of mean reading of the thought experiment. But that the point I wanted to make is that there seem to be so many differences in the underlying causal structure of, of Frick's world compared to the, to the real world in which... Uh, we need to make choices about vaccination policy. That even if his analysis has a high degree of internal validity, even if we think, well, given the facts that he's described in his imaginary world, even if we think that he's, he's right in terms of in, internal validity, that the thought experiment seems to have very little um, external validity at all. It occurs to me that one or two people might feel, OK, well, maybe this is just a, a one-off. But I think we see these sorts of problems again and again with thought experiments. So just to give you one more, another famous thought experiment, this one from Peter Unger, who in fact writes a whole book based on this thought experiment. I'll give it to you and won't criticise it, but you should be able to do it yourself by now. So this one's called The Envelope. A letter from UNICEF comes through your door. After reading it through, you correctly believe that unless you soon send in a cheque for £100, then instead of each living many more years, over 30 more children will die soon. But you throw the material in the bin, including the convenient return envelope provided. You send nothing, and instead of living many more years, over 30 more children soon die than would have died had you sent in the requested £100. So what's intriguing about a case like that is, as it were, he stipulated a world in which it's, it's just a matter of, of, uh, of factual necessity that if you put the £100 in an envelope, then, then 30 children will be saved. But again you try to to think about what the the causal structures are by which people are actually saved by charities in in the real world obviously it becomes much more complicated so there seems to be a, a massive problem of external validity there. So where does this leave us? Well because thought experiments are obviously small short fictions they're Cold experiments are in a significantly weaker position than uh, randomised clinical trials with respect to internal validity. Um, Arguably, they may be roughly on a par when it comes to external validity. But even if they are roughly on a par when it comes to external validity, that's fairly cold comfort because external validity is a a massive problem. It's, It's really external validity and the difficulties in establishing external validity are exactly the reason why policy is so hard to do and why it so often happens that governments make things worse rather than better. And so it looks like the analogies will be very close. So in both the cases of of the thought experiment and the case of the um, physical experiment, we've seen that we do certain things to try to better ensure um, internal validity. But at the same time, those very sort of... um, Abstracting moves end up making it much more difficult to achieve external validity but I think that it's important not to be to end on a completely skeptical note because um, what we 've shown is that well Doing experimental work is, is hard, just in general. It's hard to design the, the experiment in, in the first place so that we get, get rid of all the biases. But even if you've done that, it's, it's then hard to, to go from what you can get out of the experiment to something which will be useful in the world. Uh, that's just the nature of experimental work. It's the nature of, of experimental work in medicine that, that the best researchers have come to the conclusion that maybe upwards of 80% of the, of the, of the published work is, is flawed that, doesn't, that has no external... Validity and possibly, if, if we're honest enough as philosophers, we might uh, admit that maybe the figure for useless or uh, or non-externally valid thought experiments in in philosophy may be much higher than that. Just because I think that we're much less rigorous in our in, in our uh, in our attempts to establish um, internal validity than they are in experimental science. So I think this leaves leaves us with a kind of a mini aporia, I guess, a question, about well, well, given that it, we started from the idea that, well, it looks really tempting to do things like thought experiments because they seem rigorous, they allow us to take things apart and to, and to make distinctions and do all the sorts of things that philosophers like to do. But it turns out that thought experiments aren't a particularly good way at improving our grip, grip on what to do um, in the real world. Um, and in the paper, I go into this in a bit... Um, more detail, but I'll just sketch, sketch things here. So I suggest two different um, reactions to this. The first one would be, effectively, to double down on the, on the scientific model. Effectively, say, well, OK, well, they've, they've faced this problem in, in experimental science. How have they um, attempted to solve it there? And to, to cut a long story short, the way that they've, they've tried to deal with the problem of external validity in, in broader science is just to... Is to um, take it on the chin and think about and realise that, well, it's actually quite difficult to, to go from, um, from a very abstract context all the way to something that will work in reality, that maybe what we need to do is to think about different kind of sort of layers and, and translating from one layer, level of abstraction to another so that one person might work on, the, um, on what a particular protein does, then another person might be able to think, oh, given that we know a bit about what that protein does, how might we be able to design a target for a drug? And so that, so that we've begun to reconfigure the whole system, what's known as translational research now, in a way that tries to say, well, okay, well, these problems are just extraordinarily difficult to, to, to solve, but that in order to get better at solving them, what we need scientists to, to do is to cooperate better, to, to do research which is better able to be used by other people, to think about how you can get from their research to other things that might be useful or, or uh, pushing towards something that might benefit patients overall. And in other work, I've actually argued that we should rethink philosophy in this more sort of translational mo- model rather than think of it in, in a more uh, quasi platonic way of trying to get at, as it were, some sort of truths out there. We think about more like, well, what would it be for ethics to be useful? How could it help the sorts of uh, doctors or social workers? I started with by mentioning um, at the start of the, of, the, of the talk. And in order to do that, we need to be able to combine what we can get out of, of theory or maybe doing the thought experiments, but also with something that comes closer to, to real life. And there's a question about how we get across that uh, trajectory, what in, in scientific terms is often known as the valley of death. I have some ideas about that, but I won't say more about it now. And the other suggestion I had is actually to give up on the science model altogether. Just embrace the idea that, that thought experiments are fictions, but that if we embrace the idea that thought experiments are fictions, I think maybe one of the things to take away from that is the thought that, well, they don't have to be as, I guess, as as dull and as flat as as philosophical thought experiments often are. They can be more fully realised. They can really present a world, a world that we can inhabit, which allows us to rethink um, our own world. And so maybe the the big upshot of all this, and maybe uh, it's just that... At bottom, a thought experiment in, of the sort that we've been talking about, a thought experiment is a type of model. And like other sorts of models that scientists, scientists or philosophers use, you know, models are useful only because they're much simpler than the thing that they're trying to model. And scientists have realised for ages that we need to think quite systematically about how to go from the, the world of the model to to the world of reality and and back again so that we can use the model in a creative way to help us think about the problems that we're trying to solve in the the real world. And so that, to do that as philosophers, either we need to to focus more about, well, how do we go between different levels of ethical thinking, or perhaps we just say, well, let's just embrace the idea of the the fictionality of our models. But either those could be good ways forward, maybe both of them are. But maybe the, the biggest thing we need to avoid doing is kind of reifying our models, assuming that as it were we've created a model or a, or a thought experiment almost that the thought experiment it, itself is, is the point of doing ethics and almost that, the, that it's enough to create a sort of industry of people looking at a t- particular sort of thought experiment and, and creating a whole career out of looking at a particular sort of thought, thought experiment that just seems to be um, mistaking the map for the territory sort of getting tangled up in your own model so I wanted to finish just with, give the last word to Borges, who's, who has, gives, a, I think, a brilliant literary thought experiment about the limitations of scientific models, which in, in a way kind of says in about five lines what I've been saying over the last hour. So um, last bit to read out. In that empire, the art of cartography attained such perfection that the map of a single province occupied the entirety of a city and the map of the empire, the entirety of a province. In time, those unconscionable maps no longer satisfied, and the cartographers' guild struck up a map of the empire whose size was that of of the empire, which coincided point for point with it. The following generations, who were not so fond of the study of cartography as their forebears had been, saw that that vast map was useless, and not without some pitilessness, was it, that they delivered it up to the inclemencies of of sun and winters. In the deserts of the West, still today, there are tattered ruins of that map, inhabited by animals and beggars. In all the land, there is no other relic of the disciplines of geography. Thank you.